Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's Wednesday. The bairn's been shipped off to nursery. The pot of Yorkshire has been drunk. I'm going to take a deep dive into the decade that we haphazardly call the noughties and to the football of its time. It's a blistering day here in Yorkshire. It's shorts weather, hashtag shorts weather, and I'm wearing a lovely little dark grey and cyan number, courtesy of Real Sociedad. So, <laughs> note to the edit, don't make this a what am I wearing segment on the introduction. <laughs> this is the Naughty's Nostalgia Podcast. This is episode 35, and today we'll be talking about Leeds United in the first half of the decade and their spell in Europe. We'll be talking about Deportivo versus AC Milan of 2004 and other great Champions League comebacks. And the table never lies, goes to the Premier League in 2004-05. We'll be talking about Survival Sunday, Jose Mourinho's Chelsea, the Invincibles, petering out, and a lovely little end-of-season clash between Manchester City and Middlesbrough, which had huge ramifications. A little bit of admin before we start. Give us a five-star review, follow us, subscribe, whatever the podcast overlords on the app that you use tell you to do, and... Stick it right here on this podcast feed every Wednesday for Notice Nostalgia episodes and plenty more in the summer, but that's a a wee little surprise for after the European Championships. Let's get underway, shall we? So when we talk about Leeds United, the 2001 Champions League campaign in the semi-finals, we have to go all the way back to the early 60s when Leeds were a second division club and they'd just signed Don Revy as a player. He was the man like Shankly, like Busby, that built the foundations of a, big, of a big English football team. They'd won two league titles, they got promoted to the first division, they'd finished in the podium six times, they had the 1968 League Cup final win over Arsenal, they had the 1972 FA Cup final win again over Arsenal, and Revy would be at the helm for Leeds' first forays into Europe. Under Revy, they'd win two Fairs Cups in 1968 over Ferenc Varos, and in 1971 over Juventus, as well as the 1967 Dynamo Zagreb final defeat, and in 1973 when they lost the Cup Winners' Cup final to AC Milan. After Revy, well, they survived the tumultuous but brief Brian Clough reign that has been immortalised in film, with the great Michael Sheen starring in that one as Cloughy, and they actually made the Champions League final, or the European Cup final as it was then in 1975, Leeds fans would cry foul of Bayern Munich that evening for goals they shouldn't have had and goals they should have had, which is why they still chant Wacko, we are the champions, champions of Europe. Anyway, a revelous Leeds and a Leeds lacking a tight knit of players as the, all the players just reached the age of their peaks and retirement. So you had your Jackie Charlton's Norman Hunter, Peter Lorimer, Eddie Gray, Johnny Giles, Billy Bremner, Tony Yoriff, Alan Clark, and others all leaving around the same time and they dropped out of the hunt for a while. They were relegated in 1982. They would return to the top flight in 1990 and in 1992 under Howard Wilkinson, title number three. This granted them access back into Europe and they had previously had two tries at European Cup football. They fell obviously agonisingly short in the aforementioned final against Bayern Munich and 
fell short in the semi-final in 1970 against Celtic, who would go on to lose the final against Feyenoord. They were the only English representation for the newly fangled Champions League in the 1992-93 season, and there was controversy in the very first match. Stuttgart seemingly won on away goals after beat, after losing 4-1 to Leeds at Elland Road after a 3-0 win back in back in Germany, but they were ruled to have fielded too many foreign players, which the rule at the time was you couldn't play more than three foreign players. So a third leg was ordered after a forfeit, which was at the time 3-0, so it equalised the aggregate at 3-3. And in the end, they had a playoff in Barcelona where the likes of Gordon Strachan and Kyle Schuck got the goals in a 2-1 win for Leeds. But they wouldn't make the bizarre little semi-final group stage because they would miss out in the Battle of Britain to Rangers and the Champions League groups. And but midway through the end of the season, it was Eric Cantona leaving Elland Road for Manchester United. And the rest is history as Manchester United went on to become the dominant side of the 90s. England's recovering coefficient after the Hazel disaster and their subsequent five-year ban meant by the mid-90s, top five clubs were rewarded with European football. And after Howard Wilkinson left in 1996, having returned Leeds back into Europe via the UEFA Cup and losing the League Cup final to Aston Villa, George Graham inherited a transitional squad. So we've got pivotal players such as Lee Bowie coming from Charlton, Nigel Martin and Stephen McPhail being promoted from the youth setup. And sign-ins such as Ian Rush and Lee Sharp didn't really pay off and the uh, count of the cost of that for quite some time. You've got the likes of John Lukic, Gary Speed and Gary Pallister, all league winners from 1992 they left. And Graham's side recorded a shockingly low 28 goals in the uh, 96-97 season. They finished 11th though, so they were nice and safe. And the 28 goals would be a record right up until a Sunderland team would have been either the Peter Reid team or the Mick McCarthy team. I don't know which one, sir. Further transition saw the likes of Tony DiRigo, Carlton Palm, and Tony Yeboa leave. Yeboa, famous for all those thunder bastards scored in the uh, early 90s. Meanwhile, you've got Jonathan Woodgate, Alan Smith, Paul Robinson, a good crop of youth players coming from the academy, and Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank was signed from Boa Vista. The Dutchman rattled in 16 Premier League goals, and Leeds subsequently returned to the top five, and crucially for our point here today, European football, the UEFA Cup for the 1998-99 season. Most crucially, though, in the 97-98 season, the man who became Leeds chairman, of course, and that was Peter Ridsdale, a fan and product of the city of Leeds, and he became chairman, and he will become quite synonymous with even the club now, as we are returning to Leeds in the Premier League in 2021. But in October 1998, George Graham had taken Leeds to the top of the Premier League for the very first time, which is absolutely staggering since they've been in the uh, been in the league for six years after the uh, after the old first division final win in '92. He was still drawn though to struggle in Tottenham Hotspur, and he left after a penalty win versus Maritima, the Portuguese team in the UEFA Cup. Leeds taken over by David O'Leary, which was George Graham's assistant. Both have ties to Arsenal and their fantastic teams in the late '80s, early '90s there. And David O'Leary, under the stewardship of the Irishman, they would bow out to Roma in round two of the UEFA Cup. What followed was a run of seven without a win, or if you take it another way, six draws and one loss, so one loss in seven. But it, it soon turned to form under David O'Leary. The one at Anfield, they ran would-be treble winners close at Old Trafford, and by 1999, they were six points off the pace in fifth, and only two points behind what would become the top two in Manchester United and Arsenal. One of the shining lights that season was the pickup in form and development of Harry Kewell, who continued his development. He won the PFA Young Player of the Year, played in all 38 Premier League matches, which nowadays is unthinkable really for an attacking player to play in every single Premier League match. David Batty and Eric Backer would be signed as O'Leary was plumping for youth with a little blend of experience in there. Hasselbank joint stop scored with the likes of, I think it was Dion Dublin and Michael Owen with 18 in the Premier League. And Leeds won seven in a row between February and April, and it looked as though they might just be able to snatch a Champions League spot, but in the end, they finished fourth. But by this point, they were seven behind a seemingly unmovable Man United. And towards the end of the season, a good lot of uh, good lot of results for Leeds. They'd rubber stamp their credentials with a, a 1-1 draw against Manchester United at Elland Road, and probably accidentally helped their rivals, their big... Uh, Wars of the Roses rivals lift the league title by beating Arsenal 1-0 in the final week, which allowed Manchester United in turn to win the treble. And Leeds, over the summer, with the development of their young players and 
David O'Leary getting his uh, feet under the uh, under the table and getting nice and cosy. They were the front of the pack to challenge Man United going into the 99-2000 season. However, Hasselbank was sold to Atletico Madrid for £12 million and replacing him were Darren Huckabit, Michael Bridges, whilst a good crop of players came through as well. You've got Danny Mills being signed, Michael Dubry being signed, Jason Wilcox, Olivier Decor. So David O'Leary really strengthened the Leeds team. Without signing too many superstars, he's getting strength in depth for another season in the UEFA Cup. Leeds would lose at Highbury, they'd lose at Old Trafford and they lose against Wimbledon and Liverpool. But Leeds would lead the Premier League again going into the new millennium. So if there's a pub quiz answer, pub quiz question, which team was the first league leaders of the millennium? Leeds United. That's yours for free. You can have it. They'd gone to Belgrade and Moscow twice in terms of European football and they were in the hat for the last 16 of the UEFA Cup. They had Roma to beat and this was a mark of how far David O'Leary had come as Leeds manager. His first European tie was Roma, where they lost, and this time they got a Harry Kuehl winner at Elland Road and Leeds progressed to the quarterfinals. And they toppled Slavia Prague and then was faced with a trip to Istanbul and Galatasaray, which was Leeds' first European semi-final since 1975. But unfortunately, it will become completely irrelevant. The lives of Kevin Spate and Chris Loftus were lost, and less importantly, Leeds lost 4-2 on aggregate. Eddie Gray has admitted in uh, future interviews that mines were elsewhere, obviously, and Leeds wouldn't win for four games, which turned second place into a desperate fight with Liverpool and Arsenal for third and that final Champions League place as only three English teams would get into the Champions League. Leeds would beat relegated Sheffield Wednesday and Watford whilst Liverpool lost at home to Leicester, which left a dramatic final day to say the least. Liverpool dropped two points at home to Southampton, which meant their goal difference meant that Leeds needed a point at Everton, at home to Everton on Monday Night Football. Any hopes of Everton helping their rivals out were banished. 1-1, nine-man Everton, Leeds crawled back into third, going into the final day. Leeds, they had a tricky tie at mid-table West Ham, who had finished fifth the previous season, whilst Liverpool travelled to Bradford who needed a win to stand any chance of survival. And in the end, it was a former Leeds man who helped him out, David Weverall, scoring the goal to sink Liverpool in a 1-0 win for Bradford that saved Bradford and helped Leeds, and technically saved Leeds as well, and getting Leeds into the Champions League for the first time in eight years. Thankfully, as Leeds could only draw 0-0 at Upton Park. Leeds would then poach Liverpool talent Dominic Matteo from them, a big Yorkshire lad as well, and in the winter, the big money began to be splurged. 18 million on Rio Ferdinand. 12 million for Inter Milan's Robbie Keane, an initial loan that was turned permanent in the spring. Leeds were earmarked as Manchester United's closest rivals once more, but the Champions League was distracting. A loss at home to Newcastle on January the 20th had them 12th after 22 games, but they would lose just one game again all season. But on the European side of things, Leeds had to pre-qualify and Alan Smith got vital goals home and away to 1860 Munich to land them in Group H and they couldn't have got a worse group really. You've got AC Milan in there, former champions, Barcelona in there, former champions, and they've got a return to Turkey against Besiktas, who were in their first European Cup campaign ever. And to make things worse, they were thrashed 4-0 by Barcelona on opening night in the new camp. They were helped out massively by Dida dropping an almighty clanger in the second fixture, a home tie against AC Milan with Lee Boy getting an 89th minute winner. And what followed was a 6-0 demolition of Besiktas and the daunting return to Turkey which ended up being a nil-nil. And Besiktas had beaten Barcelona 3-0 in Istanbul, but after the match day fours draws with Barcelona and Milan sharing the spoils, you had Besiktas and Barcelona on four, Leeds and Milan on seven points apiece with two games to go. And Lee Boyer was the epitome of this Leeds team at the uh, in the group stages. His man of the match performance at home to Besiktas was followed by the opener against Barcelona. However, Rivaldo clawed back a point with uh, a goal on 94 minutes, which must have been heartbreaking for Leeds fans. But it left Leeds needing a point versus already qualified AC Milan in the San Siro. And the man they poached that summer from Liverpool, the man of the hour, Dominic Matteo, scoring an iconic goal in Milan. And the 1-1, as it was in the San Siro, was enough. In the second round group stages, as you know, in the 1999-2000 season onwards, until 2002-03, we had two group stages, which... Nowadays would have been seen as uh, modern slavery, but there we go. Um, Leeds, however, had 
Spain and Italy to go back to as Lazio and Real Madrid were drawn in the second round group stage, also Anderlecht. Leeds were quickly undone by Fernando Hierro and Raul at Elland Road. Real Madrid, of course, being European champions at the time. Meanwhile, back in Rome, Mark Viduca's absolutely magnificent back heel. A, an assist that I think goes under the radar because I, I wasn't fully aware of it until I went back and watched the highlights this week to prepare for this podcast, but that was a fantastic back heel. Alan Smith, late winner against Lazio. Lazio, let's not forget, quarter-finalists the season before and were one of the uh, front-runners to actually win the tournament. They had a great team, Italian champions at the time, of course. And Anderlecht were beaten, first by a late Lee Boyer winner and then a first-half demolition in Brussels on what looked to be an absolute sodden pitch. Those wins whilst uh, Lazio toiled to just one point from the first four games in that second round group stages meant that Leeds qualified with two games to spare a lot easier than the first group stage. They'd uh, got a lot better as we went into the spring so that the second round group stage you played two games in the in the winter and then you played the other four sort of back end of winter, early spring. Leeds did go toe-to-toe with champions Real Madrid in a half full burnabout until Raul's winner on the hour in a 3-2 defeat and they went on to put three beyond Lazio in a scintillating draw to close out the group stages. Second place though was a blessing in disguise as Leeds would avoid Bayern, they'd avoid Real Madrid, they'd avoid Manchester United, the three past or would be after this season the three most recent European champions United in 99, Real 2000 and Bayern would win this Champions League season. This, though, meant that Leeds got the easier half of the draw. Deportivo were first. You had an Ian Hart thunderbolt of a free kick, an Alan Smith header, and Judas himself, Rio Ferdinand, getting the third, which meant a comfortable advantage going to La Coruña, which admittedly was whittled away by a Jalmina penalty and a Diego Tristan second. But Leeds held on. They were in the semi-finals for the first time since 1975 of the European Cup, and they got a nil-nil draw at Elland Road against Valencia. Valencia now, at this point, they were in the European Cup final the season before, got undone by, as I like to say, that Steve McManaman is a kick in Paris. Um, and they were after their second European final in a row. Leeds were in their second European semi-final in a row, hoping to make their first but their first final, but they were undone by Juan Sanchez inside 16 minutes. And Leeds fans could cry foul because that definitely looked like a handball on, on, the, uh, on the replays there. If that was VAR, that would be chalked off easily. But there was nothing controversial about Sanchez's second, a low strike beyond Paul Robinson. And guys commend Dieters, another low strike beyond Paul Robinson. It was 3-0, Valencia were easily through in the Mestalla and Leeds wouldn't be back ultimately. And perhaps the most crucial fixture in probably Leeds' last 20 years isn't the two legs against Valencia, but it's the trip to Highbury in between those two legs. Now you see Liverpool, Leeds, Ipswich were all tied on 62 points with three to play, all battling that Champions League spot. Leeds lost 2-1 at Highbury whilst Liverpool win against Newcastle. Chelsea would do Leeds a favour with a 2-2 draw at Anfield, but even a 6-1 win against Bradford couldn't put Leeds in the top three. It left Leeds and Ipswich on 65 points, Liverpool on 66 going into the final day, but Leeds's 3-1 win against Leicester was matched by Liverpool's 4-0 win at Charlton. No favours done this time, and Leeds finished fourth, which was, in my opinion, the difference between near liquidation and continued presence in Europe and the Premier League. They had the UEFA Cup gifting short trips to Portugal, France, Switzerland against lesser opposition, let's uh, be blunt, in the 2001-02 season, which meant Leeds were had more of a hand in the title race. They weren't distracted by European football as much, but that spending did go overboard in this season. £20 million was spent on the likes of Seth Johnson and Robbie Fowler, which doesn't seem a lot nowadays, obviously. That would buy you a Premier League mid-table player. Probably a defensive midfielder if you're a Brighton or a Southampton. But in 2001, 20 million pounds was a lot of money. And it also put the onus on Leeds. Champions League football was an absolute imperative at this stage. The 3-0 win at home to West Ham on New Year's Day meant that Leeds began 2002 top. They began 2000 top. They began 2002 top. So the Omens were good in that in that sense that they would qualify for the Champions League and they won at Highbury. In the second game, they got draws at Old Trafford at Anfield, so they were going toe-to-toe with the biggest and best, the top three, as it were, at the end of the season. And thankfully for Leeds, 
the Champions League opened up so four English teams could make the Champions League at this stage. So, But they wouldn't win in the second half of the season against the big teams. They lost 2-1 at home to Newcastle. They drew 1-1 at home to Arsenal. They lost 2-0 at Stamford Bridge. They lost 4-0 at home to Liverpool and shipped another four goals to Manchester United at Elland Road. And seven without a win saw first on New Year's Day turn to fifth in March and defeats to Spurs and Fulham at the back end of the season. Saw them finish fifth, which meant UEFA Cup football again. And this is the downward spiral. So you've got David O'Leary leaving, Peter Ridsdale continuing to uh, continuing as chairman. He couldn't pump any more money in. You've got Rio Ferdinand, Robbie Keane, Lee Bowyer, Jonathan Woodgate, Robbie Fowler, all gone. Terry Venables, he came and went as manager. Peter Reid was manager. Mid-table, 15th. And then the following season, you've got Harry Kuehl, Olivia Decor, Nigel Martin, all gone in the 2003-04 season. Peter Reid came and went as manager. Eddie Gray couldn't keep them up. And of the 11 that started in Valencia in that Champions League tie, only Eric Backer remained for the 2004-05 season in the Championship. And even then, Backer only played once in the Championship in the first season anyway. That season, that summer, Robinson, Alan Smith, James Milner, Stephen McPhail, Mark Viduka, Ian Hart, Nick Barnby, Danny Mills, Dominic Matteo, Jason Wilcox, Michael Bridges. It was a fire sale at Elland Road. Alan Smith obviously got the brunt of Leeds United's fan criticism, uh, leaving for Man United after previously stating that he would never leave for Man United. But in his uh, perspective, he was trying to help out the club that he loves by uh, getting a move to a club like Man United who'd pay a fair bit of money. They paid seven million, obviously, because United realised that Leeds were in a bit of a quandary of uh, money and Leeds would end up selling £60 million worth of players in over the previous three seasons and they'd only come back under Bielsa after points deductions, three years in League One, two lost playoff finals to the likes of Watford in 2006 and Doncaster in 2010, I think, or 2009. I asked for your Leeds United memories. So we had Lelouch who said Leeds were Brexit FC done right and he thought they were going to win the league whilst FT LOL podcast asked, was there a better selection of strikers than Viduka, Fowler, Keane and Smith in the 2001-2 season? I was having to think of this and I can't think of many. So you've got Newcastle in 97 where you've got Shearer, Ferdinand and Aspria. You've got United's 99 treble winners in Sheringham, Solskjaer, Cole and York. Uh, City in Manchester City, that is in 2012. We've got Dzeko, Balotelli and Aguero, obviously. And Liverpool in 2014, the Naily men. You've got Sterling, Sturridge, Suarez. And I can't think of many more outside that. I've got that collection of strikers that Leeds possessed in that time. And obviously it wasn't enough where in 2002, they really, really needed to to win the, to get into the Champions League to for their own survival, basically. And I do think the season before when they didn't beat Arsenal was the turning point. It wasn't not winning against Valencia because would they have beaten Bayern Munich in the final? It's hard to say. I, I wouldn't have thought so. And that would have earned them a place in the Champions League as title holders, which we'll be discussing a bit later on in the table, never lies. But I do believe that that loss at Highbury was the complete turning point and they would have remained in the Premier League forevermore if they'd have retained that that uh, Champions League status. Or maybe they'd have just kept going and kept, to spend, kept spending money to retain that top three, top four spot. And the moment they leave it, they'd be gone. And maybe it was better to do it quicker and get relegated sooner so they can bounce back quicker and less money spent over two, two three years rather than spending it over 10 and digging yourself a bigger hole when the inevitable dip comes because every team has a dip. I mean, Arsenal and Man United had to wait 20 odd years. Chelsea have had their dip going into the UEFA Cup. Tottenham, obviously, probably more dip than uh, getting into Champions League. And Man City, maybe might have theirs soon. They almost did in 2016. So it's not guaranteed even with money and even with great players that you'll qualify for the Champions League. So maybe in a roundabout sort of way, getting relegated and that 20-year, almost 20-year wilderness was a slingshot of uh, momentum that they kind of needed to get back onto an even keel and maybe 
digging a deeper and deeper, deeper hole, maybe what I'm doing right now, <laughs> if you're a Leeds fan, that helped them in, in the long term, in the sort of 40, 50 year long term of retaining their status as a football team rather than, you know, going completely bankrupt and then liquidation and being having to rise up right from the blue square south or wherever, you, <laughs> wherever they would have uh, landed. We'll be remaining with the likes of Deportivo and AC Milan, who Leeds tackled in that Champions League campaign. But a few seasons later on, I'm going to be talking about Champions League comebacks after this short, short break. Welcome back. So as I'm talking to you here today in March 2021, you've got AC Milan just about to return out of the wilderness, out of that Champions League wilderness to qualify for the Champions League again. These words might sound foolish in a couple of months, but they look to be well on their way back to the Champions League after a few years away. Deportivo, meanwhile, well, they're nowhere near the Champions League. They're nowhere near the La Liga, to be honest. And back in 2004, this wasn't the case. They were more on an even keel. And it all led up to one of the best comebacks in Champions League history. So let's take a deep dive into the, this, uh, the backstory going into this match. Deportivo, we're going into 1994-95 after coming within a whisker of La Liga title. Their first would have been their first La Liga title. Meanwhile... AC Milan were winning their third Champions League in five years and did it to the team, that 4-0 win against the team that pipped Deportivo to the title and that was, of course, Barcelona. Depo had nine successive uh, seasons in the top flight of Spanish football between 1948 and 57. They'd between the Segunda and the Primera in the 60s and the 70s, which meant five promotions between 62 and 71 and five relegations between 63 and 73. And they would plunge into the third tier twice in the 74-75 season and the 1980-81 and 81 season before finally returning to the top flight in 1991. They survived in 92, got a podium finish in 93, 94 and 95 and Super Depot finally won their first trophy in the Copa del Rey in 1995. They had ventured into Europe before that though. They got into the third round of the UEFA Cup against Eintracht Frankfurt in the 93-94 season. Likewise the season before, again to German opposition and again losing out in the third round to Borussia Dortmund. Their longest run into Europe was the semi-final of the Cup Winners' Cup in 1995-96, losing to eventual winners PSG. They were dumped out of the UEFA Cup in 97's first round against Auxerre and got to the springtime knockout stage of the last 16 of the UEFA Cup in 2000, but were beaten by eventual finalists Arsenal. Before winning their final, their first and final La Liga, they were the first league champions of the millennium, let's not forget. They gained entry for the Champions League in the 2000-2001 season. As mentioned earlier, they were humbled by Leeds United 3-2 on aggregate in the quarterfinals that year. And despite having Manchester United's number in the group stages the season after, they went out in the quarterfinals again to English opposition to Manchester United. The following season, they put up a fight in the last 16 group stages, but Manchester United again and Juventus beat them and they would be finishing third. And then we get to the 2003-04 season. Deportivo had finished twice in the top two and finished third since winning La Liga. So they returned that Champions League berth. And since winning the Champions League in 1994, Milan had sort of dropped out of European relevancy, a bit like what they're doing now. They'd won the Serie A in 1996 and 1999, but at both subsequent Champions League campaigns, they'd faltered at the groups. Porto and Rosenborg went through in 96 when they finished third. And in 1999-2000, Chelsea and Hertha Berlin went through as they finished bottom of the pile in Group H in that one. And once more in 2000-2001, Milan gained four of their seven group points against Deportivo, but they were out in the group stages once more. And after that dismal showing in Europe and sixth place, Carlo Ancelotti came in, which at this time was somewhat of a punt since Ancelotti hadn't won anything at Juventus bar the obvious Intertoto Cup and he spent big. Rui Costa, Pippo Inzaghi and Andrea Perlo was the outlay, £85 million on those three in 2001. They finished fourth and were dumped out of the UEFA Cup semi-finals by Borussia Dortmund and out of another semi-final back home against Juventus in the Coppa Italia. But they came again in the market. Rivaldo, Alessandro Nesta, Clarence Seedorf. So they've signed, he's signed six absolute timeless legends of world football there in his first 12 months. Despite being some way off the pace domestically, 11 points from Juve, Ancelotti had a trophy. First, the Coppa Italia 
4-1 first leg win in the Olympico a week prior to the Champions League final at Old Trafford, a final which bored me to tears, bored Europe to tears perhaps, but Andrei Shevchenko's penalty against Juventus won the Champions League in the shootout there. Ancelotti is third with Milan, his first trophy as a manager and his first trophy at Milan and the Coppa will be wrapped up three days later with a 2-2 draw back at home against Roma. Ancelotti followed up that with an 11-point deficit with an 11-point win of a Scudetto in 2004, but they wouldn't have another Champions League final in 2004. Deportivo and AC Milan were on a collision course in Europe. Deport were through to the new 16-team knockout phase by effectively winning a two-legged knockout in the groups. Bizarrely enough, they'd beaten PSV 2-0 on match day 2 and needed to retain that aggregate win in Eindhoven on the final match day. They'd lost 3-2, which was effectively a 4-3 win with both teams finishing on the same point, and took their place in the last 16. Milan had wrapped up their knockout stage place in the Netherlands too, with their matchday 5-1-0 win over Ajax, banishing some memories of that 1995 final. Andrei Shevchenko scoring the winner in that one, and he was the 2004 Ballon d'Or winner. But Milan had scored just four goals in the group stages. Meanwhile, Deportivo, their group phase was perhaps more, more memorable and most famous, perhaps now for their 8-3 loss in Monaco. <laughs> And in hindsight, it seemed as though Milan and Juventus were set to meet in the same quarter of the draw, a replay from the 2003 final. However, Albert Luque and Walter Pandiani for Depor, they scored in a couple of 1-0 wins for Deportivo over Juventus and qualified them for the quarterfinals, not Juventus, equaling their performance from 2001. Milan confirmed their place in the quarterfinals with a far from simple 4-1 win against Sparta Prague where they ran in a couple of late goals there. And they scored four in that game, the same as they had in the previous seven games, so if you count the six group stage games, and the nil-nil in the first leg. And at home to Deportivo, they scored another four. Walter Pandiani opening Depor's account in the San Siro with a lovely header. However, the vernacular would use now to describe Deportivo's display in the middle of the match. We'd say their heads had well and truly gone. Eight minutes either side of the half, we've got a caca sumptuous volley on the stroke of half-time. Shevchenko drinking through and putting Milan ahead just seconds into the second half. And then Kaka with a low drive on 49 minutes. Perlo smashing in a free kick on 53 minutes. And it looked there. Deportivo were out. Milan were going to the quarter, uh, going to the semi-finals and they were probably favourites to retain their trophy. Going back to La Coruña, Depor needed at least a 3-0 win to qualify. And they got out of the blocks quite quickly. Pandiani again scoring and scoring within five minutes. And Dida was all at sea for Valeron's header moments later. And to be honest, by halftime, Deportivo were ahead. Alessandro Nesta's error allowed Albert Luque in. And going into the halftime break, they were through on away goals as it stood. And the goals were over there. France knocking on the back post, capitalising on their Arino Gattuso slip, and he scored the fourth. Depor would march on, but they would fall in the semi finals, falling to a stoic Jose Mourinho Porto team. More on him later. 1 0 on aggregate. It would be their final knockout stage Champions League match seemingly ever and they were relegated from La Liga in 2018 and relegated to Spain's ever complicated third tier of Spanish football. I tried to listen to Sid Lowe describe this last night on the Spanish football podcast and no I haven't got a clue. <laughs> so I asked you for your favourite Champions League comebacks. Mine personally is Manchester United's 2-1 win against Bayern Munich in 1999, something which Lelouch also corroborates with as well. It's one of his favourites. And I have to mention the semi-final comeback against Juventus as well. 2-0 down in Turin, inside no time. Captain's performance from Roy Keane and the goal from Andy Cole at the end, which summed it all up. 3-2 uh, winners there for Man United and obviously Juventus at the time were an absolute behemoth team. They never really lost a win at home. And we've got a few, I, I say a few, everyone pretty much says Istanbul 2005, Joseph Kiffin, Radio Techers, Maya McDonald and Lelouch as well. Istanbul 2005, yeah, it's one of those insurmountable ones. Again, the final and who Liverpool were playing, Milan, the season after this is probably the best Champions League comeback ever. And George HS 2706, Chelsea fan, of course. He's got a few comebacks, a few Chelsea comebacks for us. Chelsea against Barcelona in 2012, of course. That Fernando Torres goalgasm there from Gary Neville. Chelsea beating PSG. Chelsea beating Napoli. Which Chelsea against Napoli was probably my favourite out of this. Because it, it then 
initiated the battle and come back in the semi-finals. And without that extra time win against Napoli in the last 16, they wouldn't have had that Champions League semi-final win over Barcelona and the final win over Bayern Munich. We'll be staying with Chelsea, believe me, after after this short break. And the table never lies because, of course, we've got to talk about the 2004 Premier League season. Welcome back. So since we're only in audio form, I'll read you out the table as it stood. Getting on for 16 years ago, this very moment as I'm speaking. So Chelsea had 77 points ahead by 11 from Manchester United. Arsenal were on their coattails on 64 points in third. Meanwhile, you've got Everton on 51 in that final Champions League spot and the likes of Liverpool, Bolton, Charlton, Tottenham, Middlesbrough and Newcastle perhaps in the run for a Champions League spot too. In mid-table, in damaging mid-table sleepiness form, you've got Aston Villa, Manchester City, Birmingham, Blackburn, Portsmouth and needing a couple more wins, Fulham in 16th place. And of course, the final four... Southampton on 27, above the dotted line. Crystal Palace on 26 points in 18th. And you've got West Brom on 24 and rounding it off, Norwich on 20.7 from safety. Now, of course, pretty much all the teams would uh, swap hands in the... All of the teams would swap hands in the bottom half of the table, apart from Crystal Palace there. And Chelsea would retain their title, which is where we've got to start, really. Let's be honest. It was the rise of the special one. He got off to a hot start, let's be honest. Paolo Ferreira and Ricardo Carvalho followed him from Porto. £33 million for the pair of them. He also plucked Thiago from Portugal from Benfica for £10 million. And then the key signings really, Petr Cech and Didier Drogba. Cech, £7 million from Rennes. Drogba from Marseille for £24 million, completing the spine of that team. So you've got Cech, Terry, Lampard, Drogba and sprucing it up with Ian Robert and Mieta Kesman. We'll be talking about him later too. From PSV, those pair for seventeen million, with varying degrees of success. Those two, anyway. Chelsea and Jose Mourinho began the season unbelievably. They conceded just once in the first eight games, and that was James Beatty's first minute goal at Stamford Bridge, which was ultimately a two-one win for Chelsea. Of course, as Southampton lost, their only loss that season would come from a player who would go to go on to play for them. And that was Nicholas Anelka's penalty at the, what was then called, the City of Manchester Stadium. Chelsea would drop just 10 points between that loss and being confirmed as champions. April the 30th, 2005, which was the iconic 2-0 win against Bolton. By then, though, a 0-0 draw with Arsenal 10 days prior, that the league was pretty much dusted. Arsenal really needed to win that in order to make the title race interesting. And they didn't, and it wasn't. <laughs> they, Chelsea would bow out at the FA Cup fifth round against Newcastle, surprisingly. I've got no memory of that, bizarrely, some, for some reason. I don't know why. And Jose Mourinho would rubber stamp his uh, his importance of the League Cup with arguably the greatest final in the tournament's history in 2005, beating Liverpool 3-2. And those varying degrees of cup success within a week was followed up by toppling Barcelona in spite of that toe poke from Ronaldinho. We tend to think of the goal from Ronaldinho and that's it, but Chelsea actually won that tie. John Terry scoring the winner, I think, in that one in what was a 6-5 or a 5-4 aggregate win. But needless to say, Bayern were beating 6-5 in the quarterfinals. Sumptuous Frank, Frank Lampard's half volley and Mourinho's defending of the Champions League obviously ended with the goal from the moon and Luis Garcia as Liverpool, as previously discussed with everyone's favourite memory there, winning the Champions League in Istanbul. Chelsea won 95 points in the season, uh, a record. They conceded 15 goals, a record. And one of the greatest Premier League teams of all time. And Lelouch seems to think so. He says that Jose's Chelsea were better than the Invincibles. George HS2706, a Chelsea fan as we've already discussed, uh, he said the Premier League was blue and everyone else was green with envy. Everyone in the press box having a fit. Um, Harking back to when everyone said that Chelsea were buying the league. And still, I mean, Manchester United bought plenty of players. Did they buy the league too or did they just have a really good manager and a really good uh, academy where they had a, a steady stream of players coming in? I'm thinking of a footballer podcast. He says how Mourinho, he remembers how Mourinho was questioned for his Didier Drogba signing off the back of letting Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank go and Hernan Crespo going out on loan. And he said the doubters were really spot on there. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Didier Drogba's one of the best footballers in Chelsea's history. Well, he definitely scored with the most important kick in their history in 2012 against Bayern Munich. 
and Chelsea. Yeah, for me, I I don't think I'd put them ahead of the Invincibles. I mean, they got 95 points more than the Arsenal Invincibles on 90 points. And if Chelsea got were invincible, yeah, they they would this team would be better. So they'd have say if they drew nil nil at at Manchester City that day, they'd have ninety six points. Um, yeah, they would be, but they they don't have a zero in that L column. Do they? They've got a one. Um, I'd have other teams that did better above the invincibles. So you've got Manchester City Centurions, maybe Liverpool's team from the season this past season gone. Um, if they'd have carried on that form and hit 100 like City did. Uh, but it's close between Jose's Chelsea. And I, I think even though, this might be speaking from a Man United bias here, but even though United in 99 got 79 points, they did win the treble. And maybe in 2008, it was 90 points again, like Arsenal in 2004, and they won the Champions League, whereas Arsenal didn't win anything apart from the Premier League that season. We'll go to the other end of the table, shall we? And... The biggest drama in the Premier League was probably to be had at the bottom of the table. You've got West Brom, they'd won one of their first 23 matches, but their propensity to draw, which was uh, 10 draws in the first 23 matches, left them only five points behind Palace in 17th place. They got the second win on January the 22nd, a 2-0 home win to Manchester City, and it was a clear four teams in a fight. You've got Palace on 21 points above the dotted line, and you've got the three, po- the three teams separate by two points. Southampton on 18, Norwich on 17 and West Brom on 16. They got win three about six weeks later in a 2-0 win at home to Birmingham. And you've got Portsmouth and Fulham not really getting out of uh, safety there. They quickly ran the risk of being pulled in. And in that time, in that six weeks, Norwich had probably, Norwich had won the least amount of points. So they'd gone from 17 points to 20. Now propping up the league table, you've got West Brom in 19th on 21 points, Southampton on 24, and Palace just about safe by two points on 26, that gap whittling down. West Brom, though, would uh, bounce back, to coin a phrase from Ian Dowie, winning four and five against Charlton and Everton, and Norwich were running the risk of being cut adrift massively. West Brom now were only in the relegation zone on goal difference, 27 points they shared with... uh, Southampton. Meanwhile, Palace were on 26 and Norwich were some way off on 20 points, still not picking up a point. But Norwich would beat Newcastle on April the 20th and Charlton on April the 23rd on a date where only Palace in their 1-0 win over Liverpool won out of their relegation rivals. A combination of Southampton's pulsating 4-3 win, Palace's point at Newcastle and West Bromwich Albion's loss against Arsenal meant that the four teams were separated by just one point with two to play. You've got Southampton above the dotted line on 31, Palace in the drop zone on 31, and you've got West Brom and Norwich propping up the division on 30 points. Palace would go undefeated for those final four matches, gaining six points. Another big six-pointer versus Southampton ended 2-2 between the two teams, and it was a late goal from Danny Higginbottom, a 19th-minute equaliser, and Southampton would have been down without the three points gained exceedingly late on in that 4-3 win and in the 2-2 draw there. They would have been down before the end of the season. And if there was a winner at Sellers and Norwich, if there was a winner at Sellers between Southampton and Crystal Palace and Norwich contrived to lose to home to Birmingham, they were down. But Dean Ashton's penalty in first half stoppage time meant that they had gone from the bottom right into, well, not to the top, obviously, but into 17th place. And West Bromwich Albion held Manchester United at Old Trafford, which meant they stayed at the bottom of the table going into the final day. So we had Norwich on 33 points, Southampton on 32, Palace on 32 and West Brom on 31. And a curious note here, the goal difference, Norwich, despite being 17th place, they had the worst goal difference, so they needed to win. If they won, they'd relegate the other three teams and that was it. That was the only thing they needed to do, just beat Fulham away. Fulham were safe, yet in 15th place, but Norwich hadn't won away all season. So the likelihood of it happening, maybe you've got the uh, unquantifiable fight that you that you must have to survive in a relegation battle. You've got Charlton and Palace in a big South London derby. Charlton in 11th place, but they had the power to relegate a rival, so you've got that working for them as well. Southampton had probably the trickiest tie at home to Manchester United, but United didn't have anything to play for in third. Southampton hoping for some late goal magic to rub off from Sir Alex Ferguson in that one. Meanwhile, West Brom, even though they were bottom of the pile, they had the easiest game out of the division on paper. Portsmouth for 16th. They were at home. They had home advantage, so 
they had that going from unlike Norwich and Portsmouth were safe and they were low down in the table. So let's do it, minute by minute. Fulham took the lead against Norwich and would go on to win 6-0. So that's Norwich stuck on 33 points. They needed everybody else to lose from here on in. Southampton weren't about to do that. They went 1-0 up through John O'Shea's own goal, but were pegged back by Darren Fletcher, which left them on 33 points alongside Palace and Norwich, both on 33 points. But that goal difference, that sweet, sweet goal difference, they led Palace by just one goal. Palace would go down to a Brian Hughes goal before halftime at the Valley, which meant they were bottom of the pile and Southampton were safe at halftime anyway. Palace would, of course, equalise, which did nothing for for their Premier League safety because they needed a win at Palace, uh, needed a win at Charlton, sorry. But West Brom beat Portsmouth, and that first goal came from Jeff Horsfield in the 58th minute, former Shaman legend, legend. But as news filtered through of West Brom's league, Rude van Nistelrooy scored for Manchester United and Southampton dropped from 17th right the way down to the bottom of the pile. But there was some fight left in Crystal Palace. Andy Johnson, the man who dragged Crystal Palace all season, scored from the penalty spot. Palace were on 35 points, West Brom on 34, and Norwich and Southampton were pretty much doomed on 33 and 32 respectively. So it was a a genuine shootout between Palace and West Brom going into the final 20 minutes. It was the 21st goal of the season for Andy Johnson, and by my tally, he got he saved Palace a hard 15 points, and he got a first goal in one win. So that's, by my calculations, a soft 17 points won alone, and they got they would end up on 33 points. So he got more than half of Crystal Palace's points on his own. West Brom would take a 2-0 lead. So that meant that put serious pressure on Palace going into the final 10 minutes. But if they would be safe if they could just hold on to that hold on to that lead at Charlton. And the man who gave away Palace's penalty, Jonathan Fortune, put Palace back into the corridor of uncertainty, as Guy Mowbray famously put it. Jonathan Fortune scoring with eight minutes to go. Charlton sinking Palace back into the championship. Palace's rotten record in the Premier League of going down immediately. The third time in a row that that had happened in Premier League history happened once more. They would return in 2013, where they've remained ever since, comfortably mid-table most of the time. Norwich returned in 2011. They were down in 14, up in 15, down in 16, up in 19, and back down in 2020. And as we uh, talked to you today, in late March, they're probably coming back up again. So the uh, perennial yo-yo team taking over that mantle from West Brom, of course, who went down in 06, up in 08, down in 09, up in 2010, Spent a good eight years in the top flight, but went down in 2018. Only to go up in 2020, and again, like Norwich, they'll be changing divisions at the end of this season, likely to go down again this year. So the two big yo-yo clubs. Meanwhile, Southampton returned in 2012 and have remained in the Premier League ever since. I asked for your best Survival Sundays. Joe, good friend of the podcast, Joe said, uh, Survival Sunday in 2011 was the last exciting one with... uh, Seem to remember Birmingham and Blackpool going down there. Wolves staying up despite losing 3-2, as Joe says. And Wigan staying up with that Hugo Rodriguez goal. Uh, shockingly from Blackpool, really. It was really harsh on them to go down. They were really entertaining. West Ham, the other team in that, but they weren't involved in the Survival Sunday, as they were already down, I think. They must have been. So we'll uh, have a quick run through the other, the other happenings in the 2004-05 Premier League season. You've got Arsenal's Invincibles run ending on game 50. So they made it to a nice round 50. That would have been nice for Arsenal fans. But no, it was Rude van Nistelrooy killing off some demons with that first, that penalty, that penalty that would have stopped the Invincibles run dead in its tracks back in September 2003, I think. But he had to wait 13 months and he scored. Wayne Rooney got the second and Man United won 2-0. By that point, though, Arsenal were still top. They'd win just one game, though, between then and December. The game was a good one. 5-4 5-4 in the North London Derby. We've spoken about it on the past couple of weeks' shows. Uh, losses at Bolton in January and at home to Manchester United in that pulsating 4-2 win. It's more famous now for the Roy King, Gary Neville, Patrick Vieira bust up in the tunnel. Um, another another loss against Birmingham meant that five defeats, 12 points behind Chelsea. They were seven points worse off than the Invincibles. So technically, the Invincibles wouldn't have caught Jose's Chelsea, but that's uh, that's a story for another day, isn't it, really? A what if for another day, maybe. Merseyside madness. So, since Howard Kendall left in 1987, Everton's league positions were as follows. I'll take you through this journey. 
fourth, eighth, sixth, ninth, twelfth, thirteenth, which is the first Premier League season. Survived by the skin of the teeth in 1994 in 17th place. Then they finished 15th, 6th, 16th, 17th, 14th, 13th, 16th, 15th when Moyes took over. Bounced them up to 7th and it looked like they were going to be a big team. But finished in 17th in 2003-04 and you didn't really know where you stood with uh, with Everton. And they sold Wayne Rooney in that summer coming into this season. And they bounced back from the very real threat of another relegation fight. They added Tim Cahill, Mikel Arteta, two huge signings in the club's history. Famously didn't have a right lot of money to go out and spend players, unlike now where they've sort of levelled it out. They were spending money willy-nilly on players that didn't really fit any system. A couple of years back, they've seemed to temper that a bit with Carlo Ancelotti coming in, but 2005. Everton were third on Boxing Day. They'd lost just three times. But the most important win was the Merseyside derby on December the 11th. Lee Carsley getting the winner in that one. Liverpool, they were distracted. They had the new coach in Rafa Benitez taking over from Gerard Houllier. And he brought in Xabi Alonso, Luis Garcia, Gibril Cissé. Curiously, in the 13 Premier League games directly after Champions League football for Liverpool this season, Liverpool picked up 10 points. They're winning just two of them. But sacrificing that league form, they did have magical nights, of course. You've got the Gerard goal versus Olympiacos in a crucial 3-1 win. You beat it. They beat by Leverkusen revenge for the 2002 quarter-final elimination. They beat Juventus, getting clean sheets at Turin and Stamford Bridge. You've got Luis Garcia's goal from the moon and, of course, Istanbul. So, as a Liverpool fan, you'd sacrifice fourth place, even though Arsene Wenger says fourth place is a trophy, but Arsene Wenger never won the Champions League, did he? So, Liverpool were in fifth and sixth for most of the season. I needed a win against Villa on the final day of the season not to finish seventh, but they put that league form, that dreadful league form, put the decision at the door of UEFA. So in 1996, Juventus and 1997, Dortmund were the Champions League winners, but weren't, they finished outside the allocated places in their division, but they weren't teams in the same nation above them as in 1998 and 2000 when Real Madrid won the Champions League on both occasions. But Real Sociedad and Real Zaragoza, both finishing in fourth, were sacrificed in favour of Real Madrid, the title holders, who finished in fifth both seasons. So UEFA ruled this unfair, stopping this practice, until Liverpool won in 2005 and finished fifth. So they, UEFA finally backtracked. They finished that five teams from the same nation could qualify, but Liverpool had to start from the first qualifying round. They'd earn less money than their English compatriots, less TV money, and technically... The uh, idiom Scouse Not English became realised as they were exempt from nation pairing, so they could draw pretty much anyone in the group stages. And typically of the time, Liverpool drew Chelsea in the groups because of course they did. From then on, UEFA agreed that title holders would earn the right to play in the Champions League from then on in. And there has only been one example of a team outside the allocated space going on to win it and sacrificing a team from their own division to do so to take up their spot as title holders and that was of course Chelsea in 2012 when Tottenham was sacrificed, Harry Redknapp was sacked, Chelsea went on to do so well in that 2012-13 Champions League season didn't they where they of course went out at the groups and went on to win the Europa League so that's something. Now UEFA allows for five teams from the same nation should a team outside the allocated places win the tournament but how well did they do the five English teams in that Champions League though? Everton First Champions League campaign, first European Cup campaign since probably the 70s, plucking that out of finesse. Obviously, the 85 and 87 title wins under Howard Kendall were done under the uh, cloud of Hazel, so they never got to actually compete in the European Cup. And their first European Cup campaign in nearly 30 years never really got going. They lost to Villarreal in qualification. Villarreal, who would meet Arsenal in the semi-finals as Arsenal beat Real Madrid, Villarreal, Juventus, before losing in the final to Barcelona, Arsenal's only Champions League final to date. Chelsea, well, they bowed out in the last 16 to Barcelona with more Ronaldinho Magnificent. Liverpool lost their crown in the last 16, also losing their title to Benfica, whilst Manchester United, following Everton quite quickly out of the door, losing in the group's fourth place in a group containing Benfica, Villarreal and Lille. So Villarreal, quite the English killer that season, apart from Arsenal, obviously. And moving slightly further down the table, we've got a quirky little uh, sort of bleeds into the what-if world that I inhabit quite often in my mind. And uh, Bolton 
Middlesbrough Man City. So Middlesbrough Man City were the clash on the final day that had nothing to do with Survival Sunday or the title race, but there was still something riding on it. Now I'll save Bolton for a deeper dive somewhere, somewhere else down the line on this podcast. Uh, Big Sam had obviously worked miracles, finished eighth, then sixth, their best finish since 1959. And they'd remain a top eight side until they left in 2007. They've obviously not been in the Premier League for a good decade now and currently inhabit League Two, although they might be up via the playoffs with the stewardship of Ian Evitt as manager. Meanwhile, Middlesbrough guaranteed a highest Premier League finish of eighth. Mark Schwarzer saved the penalty from Robbie Fowler in a 1-1 draw against Manchester City. The win would have seen Manchester City in the UEFA Cup and Borough miss out. It was City's best Premier League finish as well in eighth. They would obviously go on to bigger and better things. They're on course for the quadruple. Middlesbrough obviously aren't at this stage. It was Middlesbrough's best finish since 1951 and they'd only have five Premier League seasons after this. But they did have the fairy tale run to the 2006 UEFA Cup final. Viduka, Yakubu, Massimo Macaroni, comebacks against Roma, Stau Bucharest, Basel and ultimately an unsuccessful final against Sevilla, unfortunately. We had a lot of memories about this match since it is one of the, uh, I think it's one of the forgotten matches really, one of the big important forgotten matches that still has ramifications today perhaps. You've got Colin Noble, uh, so the last day of the season, City versus Middlesbrough, last European place at stake, a fabulous Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank free kick. City equalise and then get a penalty, Fowler takes, Schwarzer saves and the away end goes mental, I think he's a big Middlesbrough fan. Uh, FT LOL podcast says it was a great game and the same game that David James went um, up front which Danny Krabs, he agrees with. And he says that John Mackham was on the bench too, whilst David James was in front. And he says, I think he's still sulking to this day. And John Mackham, yeah, a hero for Man City, let's not forget, in that comeback win against Spurs in the FA Cup some uh, years before. Oliver Robert Jenks says, Bolton versus Borough in the League Cup with some mad names played in 2004 was his memory of the time, of, of course, Bolton and Borough being the best they've been since the 1950s. You've got Yaskalain and Campo. JJ Kotcher, Kevin Nolan, Yori Jorkaev, Kevin Davis, Stelios Giannakopoulos, Mark Schwarzer, Danny Mills, Ugo Ekiog, Gareth Southgate, Guys Comendieta, Bolo Zenden, Juninho, all Premier League legends in their own right, or football legends in their own right. Colin Noble, again, he says uh, that he was talking to his son about how they'd signed Christian Carambo as well <laughs> in the heady days of the mid-90s. Obviously, they'd signed Ravinelli as well in that relegation season where Middlesbrough were one of the most entertaining teams. And he says that they'd gone from signing a World Cup winner from Real Madrid and now they get excited about signing Premier League reserves on loan. They have spent a season in top flight 2016-17. Quickly went down under Itar Karanka. And it's a shame because I I like Middlesbrough in the Premier League. And Lelouch says the same for Bolton, says he misses Bolton in the Premier League. Harry Holland, good friend of the show, his main Middlesbrough memories were the 2004 and 6 finals also from a Bolton perspective, remembers that dance between JJ Cotter and Sam Allardyce. And to wrap things up, good friend of the show, Matty Max, says, one memory of 2004-5, Lee Bowyer versus Kieran Dyer, which was, of course, box office with the reluctant handshake afterwards, if you remember that, when Graham Sooners wheeled them out onto the uh, in front of the train ground for a photo opportunity. After this short break, we'll be rounding things off today with a 2000s trivial teaser. Welcome back. So I think I made this one a bit too easy. We had four correct answers. Jake Collinson, who's on a roll, got it correct. Podfather Mags got it right. FT Lol got it right. And Rivilla Vieira, welcome to the show, mate. You got it right as well. It was, of course, Mieta Kesman. I promised we'd be uh, talking about him later on. He, of course, was a striker. He's, of course, been managed by Jose Mourinho, by Gus Hiddink. He's played alongside Dejan Stankovic, Claude Makalele, Rude Van Nistelrooy, Fernando Torres, and Martin Petrov. Well done to those who got the correct answer. Guess this one right and I'll give you a shout out next week's show. This I've made this one a little bit harder. Our answer today, he is a central midfielder. He's been managed by the great, great Tony Pulis and Rafa Benitez. He's played alongside Thierry Henry, Fabian Bartes, Costinha, El Hajjouf and Robert Hoof. Again, for you, if you uh, weren't listening to me, our answer is a central midfielder who's played under Tony Pulis and Rafa Benitez has played alongside Thierry Henry Fabian Bartes, Costinha, El Hajjouf and Robert Hoof. If you think you know the answer, tweet me at whatif underscore YouTube where we will be residing with all quirky international football stats and looking forward ahead to the Premier League season and posting random crap. I tend not to 
tweet as much now it's just a hellscape but anyway tweet me there if you think you know the answer and just chat with me i'll be bored probably anyway we'll be back next week on episode 36 where we'll be talking about fa cup semi-finals the sheffield united versus west ham rivalry and we'll be going to the bundesliga 2005-06 season for the table never lies over there on that there youtube we'll be talking about france the euros tony adams thierry Henry, or gascoigne michael owen john charles and the oft forgotten football management sim total club manager as like as i said we'll be on twitter at what if underscore youtube acast spotify apple wherever you get your podcast give us a five star review please and until next week see there. sports social podcast network it's time for today's lucky land horoscope with victoria cash life's gotten mundane so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to lucky land you know what they say your chance to win starts with a spin so go to luckylandslots.com to play over 100 social casino style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.